Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This is a bucket list session for me because I'm talking to John Taylor and Peter Betke, the current and past presidents of the Mont Pelerin Society, classical liberal economists, and we're gonna talk about Frederick Hayek and that first gathering in the 1940s of the Mont Pelerin Society and how far we've come today. Check it out. Okay, this is sort of a bucket list thing for me. Um, we're all gathered here for a regional meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society. And today, my you guys are, are sort of two of my intellectual um, gurus when it comes to economics, uh, two, two of the most, in my mind, two of the most prestigious economists working in academia today. Uh, John Taylor with the Hoover Institute and, and Stanford University and Pete Betke with George Mason University and the Hayek Center. Um, actually, we'll start with you because I've already butchered your, your <laughs> resume. Tell, tell, tell people like who you are. Um, I was a college buddy of Matt Kibbe. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the most important thing. That's the most thing. important thing. We drank, uh, we drank beer together. We drank beer together, yeah. Um, no, I'm a, a professor at George Mason University. Um, I have been there since uh, 1998. Um, so I just finished my 20th year uh, there and uh, got a watch to show it and everything. Um, and I am the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. And you self-identify as an Austrian economist. I do. I'm the editor of the Review of Austrian Economics. I have uh, you know, taught graduate classes uh, at, in Austrian economics. I taught for um, roughly a decade, a little less than a decade at, at New York University, along with Israel Kirzner and Mario Rizzo when I, after I got my PhD, that was my, really in many ways, my first job. And uh, we used to run a annual Austrian economic seminar and I've devoted a lot of my time and energy to that. And uh, you're the guy that talked me into switching to economics at Grove City <laughs> College. And our professor was a guy named Hans Senholtz right. who who was a student of Ludwig von Mises. Yeah, first PhD of Mises in the United States. So, you know, the Mises students, uh, his gra graduate students were in University of Vienna and then in Geneva and then um, here at NYU and, and Senholtz. He had, I think, uh, four uh, PhD students during his time at NYU and, and Senholtz was his first. Yeah. And, and interesting to some people watching this, uh, about the time we were studying under Senholtz, he was mentoring this no-name congressman named Ron Paul, who has been um, has planted the seeds of Austrian economics in, in a whole new generation. Yeah. And so, and John, you're, uh, give, us, give us a little bit of your resume. So I'm a professor at Stanford and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. I um, teach freshmen, teach uh, students at Stanford have been for a long time. And I'm interested in uh, good economics. Uh, I, I, my teaching is more free market oriented, uh, focus a lot on economic freedom and the benefits that brings to people across the board. I'm interested in public policy, so I've had several stints in Washington over the years. That's, I think, an important aspect of taking ideas into action. And you, you were a Treasury economist for George W. Bush. Yes. 43. Yes. yes. Yeah. And uh, you're famous for, or infamous, depending on whether or not I'm talking to 
people on one side or the other, but you're famous for something called the Taylor Rule. That's correct. So I've always been interested in monetary policy since uh, I was an undergraduate, uh, not at Grove City, but at Princeton, <laughs> pretty good place. And I actually took a no course. No Grove City, but it's pretty I good. I took a course from a guy named Bob Keeney, and we read Atlas Shrugged. And uh, many, it was analysis of capitalism. It was yeah. a beautiful course. It got me into a, a lot of these things. But back then, I got interested in monetary policy, and it's all my life, basically. And so one contribution was this so-called uh, Taylor Rule, which was a way to systematize, make more rule-like monetary policy to get away from the discretion, which I think has been harmful. It's very much in the line of people like Milton Friedman, who over the years has argued for a more rule-like policy. Yeah. So um, the reason you guys are here is you're the, you're the immediate past president of the Mont Pelerin Society, and you are the new president of the Mont Pelerin Society. Is it a two-year term? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought we might talk about, I, I spent the last couple of days doing a deep dive on, on some, of, some of the history of the Mont Pelerin Society. Uh, there's, there's, of course, detractors who, who call it a secret society. Um, but, but I thought it would be interesting to people to think about, about where classical liberalism and free market economics was circa 1947 versus where we are today. In some ways, we're were leaps and bounds ahead of where we were then, and in other ways we're dealing with the same arguments. But, but why don't uh, um, either one of you, I don't, I don't know who wants to go first, but let, let's talk about the history. And, and what is the Mont Pelerin Society founded by Frederick Hayek? Why did he do this? You're the historian, why don't you start? <laughs> um, so I think it's important to go back and look at the uh, period of time between uh, be inter uh, in the interwar years. Um, and the rise of uh, various uh, threats to uh, the uh, classical liberal uh, position or what was just called at the time liberal uh, position that people had. And so I actually think that um, books that were published in the 1930s by Lionel Robbins and um, other arguments in the early 40s by Mises and whatnot about the, the breakdown of the international division of labor, the rise of odious racial doctrines, uh, the threat of communism, uh, the threat of, of, of the fascism, all of these kind of uh, things have uh, really challenged uh, the liberal uh, perspective. Obviously, the Great Depression uh, is a major factor in uh, affecting where liberals stand, and so they needed to have a rebirth of liberalism. Uh, they uh, had a meeting in France uh, around uh, Walter Lippmann's book, The Good Society, which argued uh, that against the um, these trends uh, that were going, that's what Lippmann's book does, and so they gathered together a group of liberal economists and historians and social thinkers in general. And uh, they were supposed to continue that, but then the war broke out. Yeah. And so then after the war, Hayek wanted to uh, reinvigorate that conversation um, in order to hopefully breathe uh, life back into liberalism for a new era. So it wasn't trying to recapture something old. It was trying to continually renew something for today's challenges in the immediate area of, of the, of, uh, in this case, of the war. And that included things like where, how was Europe going to be reconstructed and the European project, as was understood, which eventually later on led to uh, the Treaty of Rome and, and other things. And so, yeah, that, that's, you know, there was a low, 
um, a, a low time for liberal thought and economics because of the Great Depression and these other things. And so now how do you come out of that? What do we learn from that? And to sort of fix uh, the science as well as the broader policy or practical implications yeah. of things. Let's, I mean, let's define liberalism so that people understand what we're talking about because the, the, the words are all confused yeah. today. So yeah. I think, you know, so when Hayek and uh, Mises and whatnot think about liberalism or Frank Knight, uh, who were the major sort of thinkers in, in, at the time, when they think about liberalism, they do not mean progressives. Uh, liberalism, as has been understood, they mean a private property uh, economy, uh, one that respects freedom of contract, and uh, and also is, is has a constitutionally limited government uh, constructed that has a monetary policy that is sound, fiscal policy that's responsible, open in international trade. These are the kind of doctrines that yeah. they thought drove the tremendous growth in the 19th century. Um, and they believe that it could be the guiding uh, rule for actions in the 20th century. Yeah. So, so broadly speaking, that framework today, we, we could say we could call it classically liberal. We could call it constitutional conservatism. Yeah. Uh, we could call it libertarian. But but that's that's basically um, anymore when you say the word liberal, it's, it's sort of a fighting word that that people misinterpret. Um, but. You know, part of the context here, um, certainly for, for, for Hayek and Mises and maybe some of the other economists that were founders of, of Mont Pelerin, was, you know, Mises and Hayek in particular had to flee Nazi Germany and in, in the invasion of Austria. Um, so this is, not, this is not just an intellectual exercise. This is a, a question of, uh, of life or death and, and the, the, broader, the broader ability of, of people to be free really sandwiched between, yes. between Soviet socialism and Nazi, and, and Nazi Germany. I think that's right. I think, I think when, when Hayek first invited the people, 37 came, but a little more than that were invited. It was uh, December 1946. And he had the idea, he had just uh, been working on this, giving talks about it, and had the idea of bringing like-minded people together from mainly Europe and the United States. And they came and they met in this city, town in Switzerland. In fact, they debated what to call it. Mm -hmm. They, all sorts of names. Uh, Hayek wanted to be named after Dukeville uh, or Lord Acton. And some didn't want names, they wanted ideas. And so right at the end, uh, someone said, why don't we just call it where we're meeting, Mount Pelerin. And that stuck and it's still called Mount Pelerin. But it was quite remarkable. They came together, you can see the things I discussed, they're not too much different than what we're discussing at this meeting, things don't change, and the challenges then were socialism and, and communism and totalitarianism and things that really hurt people, and they were interested in finding ways to make lives better for people, and they focused on this in a very successful way. I think it's, uh, it's quite remarkable that they were able, to, you know, they had funding to get the people from various parts of the world, it's still difficult to travel, not like today, so. So let, let's name drop some of these people. We've already talked about Hayek and Mises, um, but a very young guy named Milton Friedman was yeah, there. I would emphasize Milton quite a bit. He came, Aaron Director came, and uh, they, a guy, a guy named from Stanford, uh, Carl Brandt came. He's labor, la later a member of... Nice plug for Stanford there. Yeah. Okay. Later a member of uh, Eisenhower's Council of Economic Advisors. Yeah. And so they... Um, 
they talked it up a lot. Actually, later, Friedman became president of the Mount Perlin Society and uh, was very active. He spent, spent the 1980 having a meeting uh, of that society uh, at Stanford at Hoover Institution. So that was very much part of it. I think, in fact, there's really questions about the influence of the Mount Perlin Society over the years. People are asking, what difference did it make? And, you know, there really weren't publications. It wasn't emphasized on on uh, public policy directly, but I think indirectly it had, it had huge impacts. Uh, just as an example, this is later on, 1980, but 22 of the advisors of Reagan were from Mount Perlin Society. And I think this, to me it was, the, the words are confusing, liberalism, and it's it means different things mm -hmm. to different people, but I like to stress economic freedom, and yeah. the, that's rule of law, predictable policy, emphasis on markets, don't forget incentives, and a limited role for government, and we focused on those, and that's that's been a common theme throughout. Especially, the, you know, if we forget, and I think it was too bad we forgot. We're, we're not forgetting as much anymore. Is that the the rule of law was always so important? It was a way to preserve freedom. It was a it was a way to guarantee freedom, and uh, a lot of economists forgot that. They, uh, markets, of course, are important, but that rule of law, and we, we when the Soviet Union fell. And, and looks like capitalism coming back, we forgot about the rule of law. And it was maybe the most important thing that Hayek wrote about at the time. Yeah. Well, let's, let's actually- I can say something yeah, about yeah. that. It's one of my uh, favorite stories about Milton Friedman. Um, by the way, early on also was George Stigler um, and Lionel Robbins, as well as Frank Knight. So the people there at that first meeting were some of the best minds that economics had to offer uh, in the 20th century, and so they all were debating uh, these kind of positions. But, you know, Friedman went to China in 1979, and he uh, said a famous dictum, which they said, Professor Friedman, what would you do to fix our economy? And he said, privatize, privatize, privatize. And about uh, uh, six months before he passed away, he was doing a radio interview with Russ Roberts, and uh, Russ asked him if there was anything he would change. And he said, oh, yeah, privatize, 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 provided there's a rule of law. Yeah. Um, and that changes the entire uh, issue. And so this issue, as John was just saying, on the uh, essential framework and the importance of those institutional framework within which the free economy and a free society operates, that's always been a theme that the people that were uh, brought to Mont Pelerin wanted to stress and discuss and debate about how is the best arguments for understanding that essential institutional framework. Yeah, it, and, and, and by rule of law, we're, we're talking about the institutions, both formal and informal, that, that really puts the emphasis on people making choices as opposed to the rule of man. I think a lot yeah. of people misunderstand. When we say rule of law today, it, it almost sounds kind of authoritarian, right? It's the man telling you what to do. But it's the opposite of that. And of course, this again gets back to that life or death situation they're in where uh, the rule of law had been replaced by a charismatic authoritarian like Hitler or right. like Stalin, um, very, very brutal dictators. And, and I, th I think one of the things that we struggle with today is just, just getting people to appreciate those, those institutional constraints that allow people to prosper. Yeah, it's a major issue of why it is that we have to talk about things like John was talking about with in monetary policy rules yeah. versus discretion um, or in law and economics. You know, if you think about a lot of the developments in economics that took place in the period after Mont Pelerin 
was formed. Um, they rediscover a lot of uh, core ideas of classical economics using modern economic tools. That includes law and economics, uh, the application of economic reasoning to political decision making, uh, new institutional economics, property rights economics in general. And if you follow, you can see a lot of the people that were major innovators of those ideas, Ronald Coates and Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tullock, they also were members of the Mont Pelerin Society. And that conversation was encouraged, uh, you know, and if you look back and look at the Constitution of Liberty, which Hayek published in 1960, but is based on a lot of the lectures that he gave throughout the 1950s, you know, that is about trying to get us to think about this institutional infrastructure. By the way, this sort of slipped by, but I would point out that each of you, you currently, you previously, were sitting in the same freaking chair as Frederick Hayek <laughs> and Milton Friedman. And no, no pressure at all there, right? <laughs> Well, it is pretty pretty amazing, and uh, people actually frequently are contrasting them, but they're so much alike, I yeah. think, in the yeah. issues we're discussing. They, again, I'm, I have uh, the 1980 meeting on my mind because it's coming up on 40 years, and it was a session where Hayek and Friedman were together on ways to constrain the growth of government, and they had different perspectives. It was just at the time that Friedman had put out this, uh, this video pr programs on called uh, Free to Choose. It was part of a book. And, uh, and then that was also an important time, I think, in the history where the, these ideas were spreading. Right. I mean, the United States, uh, Great Britain, and China. You know, Deng Xiaoping was bringing in a lot of the ideas at that point. So it was, uh, in a way, a victory. Uh, and I think people at the time were seeing it was a really accomplishment of, of this society and the people who belong to it. I think it now is sort of a little bit of repetition. We're going back yeah. and it just shows you that you can't ever be complacent. You have right. to keep working. You have to keep fighting because there's always pressures. There's always, always obstacles and they change over time, but they're always going to be there. I think that's, it's, it's progress. In the meantime, there's incredible progress. All these people coming out of poverty around the world. And I think you can trace that to basic free market principles. Uh, but still, it could go back. It could slide back, and got to keep working at it. I was, uh, you know, I, I got into economics. I started college um, in the late 1970s, and so my study of economics was reinforced by Friedman's "Free to Choose" uh, videos coming out. But also his performances on things like the Donahue Show and everything like that. He was a unique intellectual. I mean, he just is very talented in his ability to communicate with people that didn't agree with him. Um, and I think that that is one of the things that is just, uh, I think uh, people today should see a character like that, that's able to talk across various uh, discourse communities and be able to do it. He could talk to his peers in economics and be unrivaled in many ways. And yet he could talk to, on the Phil Donahue show, which was the equivalent of Oprah, which doesn't yeah. even exist anymore. Yeah. So whatever the most popular daytime TV show is and, and be amazing on it. And it was something when you were studying economics and you'd see Milton Friedman be able to communicate ideas in the most basic way to people and yet communicate the core idea, it really was in, um, encouraging and, and inspiring. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's kind of, I hadn't really thought about it until you said that, but he's the first guy to really sort of leverage new technology to reach the masses because, you know, Hayek, of course, wrote The Road to Serfdom, which was a, a pop culture yeah. book, right? Even though it's a pretty substantial book. 
uh, and Friedman used TV, but you know, today the equivalent would be there's a, there's a podcaster named Joe Rogan who reaches zillions of people and they have three hour yeah. conversations about, about substantial subjects. Um, and if people haven't done it, by the way, you should, you should uh, pull down some, some of these old Friedman appearances on Donahue yeah, yeah. on YouTube. They're, they're just amazing. I recommend that. I show it so to my students. He is, he does a terrific job. And in fact, I, um, he always wanted to respond to people. He said, if someone takes the time to write me a letter, I'm going to write him back. That was his attitude. Yeah. And um, he got so many letters and comments from these, the Free to Choose series that he had to just do a form letter because he couldn't respond to the yeah. thousands of people. But he, he was so considered about individuals. Yeah. He, he, and that's why I think it was so. I don't think, I don't think anyone ever won an argument with Milton. My wife likes to say she did. <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's quite remarkable. But very kind. One time we went to a, did a, a video together in a studio in San Francisco. And um, he was already in his 90s. And we walked into the studio. It was a little riser you had to, to walk up. And it was very dark, and he tripped over the riser. It was horrifying. Glasses went flying, and I, no one knew what to do. But he got up. He had not one unkind, unkind word to say to anybody. He said, "Let's go do the video." It was just, it was just inspiring in many yeah. respects. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he really is special. I mean, it's, um, uh, and I think that one of the th going back to the way he used media, the other alternative show that you would have watched at the time that you would have gotten the substantive content of a more market-oriented position would have been firing line with Bill Buckley. But I was a kid from New Jersey, and I didn't come from academic kind of background or anything like that. So to me, Buckley was an elitist. And the way I would view him is he was an elitist and that his, uh, you know, most of the time his guests that were on there were elitist. Yeah. But Milton Friedman never appeared to be an elitist. He, in fact, appeared to be with the people and that the concern was helping, you know, so, you know, one of the things I think was really powerful about Friedman was he always made the audience uh, feel that he cared about the same things that they care about, but he disagreed with them about the way to achieve their goals. And I do think that's the way we reason as economists is that we treat ends as given and reason about the effectiveness of means to those given ends. And that that Friedman was a master at doing that. And it really was. He also led with emotion. We were talking about this in the car this morning. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talks, uh, says, um, it's better to be morally right than factually correct. And, and we would all obviously dispute that. We think the facts matter. Um, but, but I think what she's really saying is that, that making that values-based, I'm trying to solve a problem that you care about. And you think about those old Friedman versus Donahue things. Donahue looked like the elitist, and Friedman's engaging the audience. And, and he always led with, let me tell you how we can solve this problem together. And, and that, that's something that I think economists generally sort of suck at. Like we're, we're so focused on the laws of economics, we, we forget to sort of establish we care about the fact that we're lifting people out of poverty or not. We care about the fact that people in right. Venezuela are starving. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, so, it's so true. And you need to keep reminding people of that. Again, the fact that billion people out of poverty in 15 years is, is just incredible. And that's because of markets. I mean, yeah. you look around the world, you see disaster cases. It's socially, it's Venezuela. It's just, uh, it's so clear. And I think the more you can say what the facts are, the facts do matter. 
right? There's some some things are successful. Right? Hayek emphasized the facts when he said socialism wasn't working. Don't yeah. go that way. Yeah. And Friedman certainly. And actually, I would say one other thing. It besides the the moral aspects and the facts, you have to find a way to make this happen. And I think just one word about Milton Friedman again. He's a great theorist, he, and he wrote this Capitalism and Freedom in 1960, yeah. which uh, was, was more academic than Time to Choose, but it had great influence too. There he was looking at specific suggestions. And, and I know in many cases, I talked to him, remember calling him when I was working in Washington asking for advice. He'd always have suggestions that seemed in the weeds to most people. They weren't just general kinds of things. So I think it just says to make the world better to apply these ideas of uh, economic freedom, classical liberalism, you have to find a way to make it happen. So yeah. it's bo both those together. I think Friedman really did both of those quite well. I was at the Fed uh, birthday t uh, celebration in Dallas, Dallas Fed, uh, to honor Milton Friedman. And that's actually somewhat of a kind of famous meeting because that's where uh, Bernanke uh, said the thing that uh, to Milton that uh, we will never repeat uh, the error that, you know, you identified in the monetary uh, uh, history, you know, uh, book. And um, but also Gary Becker gave the lunch uh, talk. And one of the things that's really fascinating about Becker, he talked about the influence of Friedman, and it relates to just what John was talking about. He's, you know, Becker was a pretty talented guy. He was an undergraduate Princeton. He already had a paper, I think, in the QJE or AER, one of the top five journals. And then he said he came to Chicago and he had to relearn economics. And Friedman was his mentor. And he said what he learned from Friedman was that, one, that economics is not just a clever game to be played by professionals, which is one of the, you know, uh, vices that we fall into. Um, but he says it's not that. But then the second one was that economics is about the world about the real world, not about just on the blackboard. So we work on the blackboard, but it's always to help us to understand what's going on outside in the world. And, you know, Becker said it much better than I just said it, but it was really kind of inspiring as a teacher of economics to try to communicate that kind of idea to your students about that it's this isn't just a clever, you know, you're not just having a game for clever people. And then it's also uh, really matters, you know, what we're saying. So I want to go back and I want to unpack uh, two seemingly contradictory statements. The first is we've come a long way since the dark days where 30-something classical liberals had to hide at a mountaintop on Mont Pelerin because they were surrounded by, by authoritarianism and, and just all sorts of bad deadlyisms, as I call them, versus um, we're having the same freaking argument today as we sit down that, that Hayek and his colleagues were trying to deal with in, in the late 1930s. But one thing you said I think is, is kind of interesting. They, you know, they debated about what to call this thing, but it was really important to them that they didn't choose sides. They, they didn't want to be affiliated with one wing of the political spectrum of the other. Yes. Um, they didn't want to be affiliated with political parties. They didn't actually even want to be affiliated with a specific thinker. So they just right. named it after the mountain, right? Um, yeah. And that's important because we're 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 striving to be objective um, thinkers and and problem solvers as opposed to apparatchiks. We're not yes. we're not flacking for somebody. I think I think that's true. In fact, 
Well, we're on the same side in many respects. It's, we have debates, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. like monetary policy is a, is a debate. Uh, how to uh, how to operate a welfare system is a debate. How to guarantee whether how the rule of law and all that is always a debate. So that's very much part of it. But I think you also have to have to remember that you have to keep doing it because people forget. And um, when I was, remember I was teaching economics when the Soviet Union existed. And you could point to the you know, crazy system, you know, build one big nail instead of a lot of little nails, and it was <laughs> useless, but, but that's no longer there. And so students don't remember that. And so they have to think of other things. And I think that's what you're seeing now. There's, a, we, there's no obvious thing to point. I mean, you point to Venezuela, but be, oh, that's different. So those, yeah. that's different. That's not, so you have to be s still doing this and showing what works and what doesn't. But it, I think it's harder when you don't have history in people's minds you have to tell them i like to i like to bring adam smith to my course i know that sounds ridiculous but we have a, i have a recording of someone sounds like adam smith and oh at least the guy existed so we, <laughs> so even if you don't read um the books um so it's not a sense of it yeah. it's not a book it's a person yeah exactly who's trying to exactly. solve problems exactly. yeah. i love that um but you know they like geographically um and sort of figuratively switzerland was sandwiched between fascism on one side, Spain, Portugal, obviously Hitler before that, and communism or war communism or or whatever you want to, however you want to characterize Stalin, right. just a guy that killed a lot of people, on the other side, and you know as a metaphor, um, they were sandwiched between these two false choices: fascism, authoritarianism versus socialist authoritarianism, and. Today, it's, it seems like we're doing the same thing. We have, we have the rise of, of, of right-wing nationalism um, and so-called democratic socialism. And, and when, you, when you try to point out to people, I mean, I, from my point of view, these are, these are variations of the same theme um, because, you know, yes, um, socialism technically is actual government control of the means of production, but, you know, at the margin, um, in Venezuela, it's a combination of, of just thug authoritarianism that's telling producers what to do and actual nationalization of industries. That, that toxic combination is what's created the, the poverty and, and, and things there. So, so in one way, we're so much better off than we were when these guys had to hide at the mountaintop, but I feel like here we are. And it, as you said, it's a think, process that never ends. I think there's ups and downs. You, you want to make, but there's going to be setbacks and you got to keep going. That's how I, how I view it. I, and I think sand, sandwich is a good I, good analogy. I think the, another important aspect of Mount Pelerin is they wanted to have Germany become a market economy again. Right. Erhard, uh, Erhard was very much part of this. And at, at that time, some people just want to squish it. Yeah, right. constrain it, and and, there, and that philosophy was so important, and so yeah. it was a revival of of Germany uh, after the war, and it, it just made so much difference. I think maybe. that's sort of a, maybe a forgotten part of. I mean, that's why Walter Oiken's involvement in the early meetings was so important, and and uh, that was one of the big things that they wanted to look for was the way that the Allied countries, people from the Allied countries, would interact with the German intellectuals as they came, and. So it was kind of, uh, you know, that's a that's a big part. I wanted to address your issue by, again, invoking another uh, Friedman uh, uh, statement, which I think is full of wisdom, which he, he argues that in the period between 1960 and 1980, 
and then the post 1980 era. So again, to, to, uh, Milton made this distinction a lot between the way that his reaction was to capitalism and freedom and then the reaction to free to choose because there's a huge reaction to the way the world happened when that book was published and when this book was published and he said it's because during that intervening period we won the war a battle of ideas but he said in the post 1980 period we lost the battle of implementation and that reinforces so one of the things that's really interesting about free to choose is that he actually um, has the public choice sort of stories kind of in it, whereas in the capitalism and freedom, he doesn't have that uh, as much emphasized, but he does in Free to Choose, including the constitutional uh, analysis, but also the sort of interest group politics. And that later on becomes like his book where he refers to the Iron Triangle, right? The tyranny of the status quo, which is how difficult it is to break these various different alliances that you form. And I think that's become one of the really important uh, lessons that we've learned is that we can't become triumphalists over, say, the collapse of communism, which was an amazing moment in history. And uh, it freed up, uh, you know, millions of people that had been living under oppression. But yet at the same time, there has to then the work really gets going on. How do you get these institutions um, in place? And so that, you know, um, that's interesting, you know, back at Grove City, uh, just very quickly about the nature of history. When we were at Grove City, we had to take a course, I don't know if you remember, is on uh, basically the history of, of uh, like Western civilization kind of thing. And I had, the guy who I had for it was a strange teacher. I don't know who you had, but I had a guy named Kaufman. And he made us read this book called The Canical for Leibowitz. Uh, which is a science fiction book. So, and the way that what happens in the Canical Leibowitz is that uh, you have a nuclear annihilation and then civilization has to rediscover itself. And what it, the sub theme in it is the different notions of time. So, is it like the Greeks where you're just, you know, continually cycling, or is it like an enlightenment idea where you're in darkness and you just march to truth? And the way I've always read that book is that um, it's like a corkscrew. Yeah. And so what happens is you make progress, but you also can cycle back and you repeat a lot of the same things. Then you make some, you know, like this. And so that's why, to me, I've always been fascinated by this idea of why it is that we're deja vu all over again on some of these debates. So like right now, we're debating issues over monopoly. Uh, we're debating issues over monetary policy, fiscal policy that, in fact, have been debated for before. But now they're in a new context. And so rather than say the rise of the modern corporation, we're now dealing with monopoly and platform economies, right? And so what about those arguments that we developed to meet the challenge of the modern corporation? How much of those still apply to now the platform economies and, and whatnot? And so I think, you know, it does take varied iterations to force alien concepts upon reluctant minds. But at the same time, it also we have to continually recognize that we have to think hard about the context within which we're making these arguments. Yeah. And it's it's a very um, it's a fundamentally Austrian insight that 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 human knowledge and the process by which we figure stuff out is is in real time and it never ends. And and the institutions that hold us together as a civil society um, weren't weren't just airdropped in at the beginning of the process. We did that yeah. in this in this yeah. process. So you, if you, if you leave the battlefield of ideas, 
you're 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 allowing someone else to to redefine what those institutional structures should and could be. I think Pete refers to this sort of cycle, corkscrew, or whatever. But to some extent, it's because people see there's some problems. Like in the U.S., we saw these problems in the '70s: higher inflation, higher unemployment, and it seemed like a mess. And uh, and then and, and it was changed. In the '80s and '90s were better, and then it went back. So so, but people get complacent after it's going okay for a while, and they don't make the changes. But then again, uh, referring to what Pete just said, the there is some changes in understanding. So, so I take regulation. Uh, there was, and George Stickle had a lot to do, that, do with this. There was this sense in which there was regulatory capture, and uh, the regulated industries were benefiting from the regulation. Right. So, it, so you had to break that. Yeah. The railroads yeah. on, and uh, that was an insight that actually helped improve the policy. You can't just say as right. regulation's bad. You have to, oh, it's there because of this this relationship and that made all the difference. And by, by the way, the, the concept of regulatory capture, uh, the, the idea that inevitably industry will um, get a seat at the table with government first and sort of game the rules against uh, the people, customers, and also upstart. Um, that should be a conversation that, that we can have with people that support bigger government because one of the fundamental problems they have, of course, is that the little guy doesn't get a seat at the right. table. The little guy will never get a seat at the table. Um, Jeff Bezos, he's always going to have a seat at the table. Yeah. And I had this argument with one of my progressive friends, and, and they have to deal with this, this question of, of concentrated power. Because you know, if you're worried about concentrated business interests, you also need to be worried about concentrated government interests. And I think that's, that's a conversation we can have with people that are flirting with, with democratic socialism yeah. because... Because I don't, I don't think they think about that that phrase. Whatever we think the word socialism means, I, I think I think young people have a very different interpretation <laughs> of what that is. So, uh, uh, you know, the video clip of AOC uh, holding the, uh, you know, her first, uh, you know, um, uh, hearing, uh, which was on campaign finance reform. Yeah. If you would take her out of that picture you could have put Gordon Tullock in there and have the same conversation right. about the interest groups that were forming and everything like that. And so I think that we should be talking to people about those kind of ideas. What what George Stigler and Sam Peltzman did to understand the regulatory economy and the existence of regulatory capture, you know, just really can't be forgotten. Just um, a, a, a funny story on that. I was at a conference at the LSE many years ago and Ann Kruger was there. Uh, she's a, a wonderful development economist, uh, and uh, she uh, said, no offense to my George Mason friends. Uh, I, there was only me. <laughs> so, no Hi. offense to my George Mason friends, but all, what we really want is we want uh, reasonable regulation that's not capturable by interests. <laughs> and I laughed because I raised my hand and they said, what, Pete? And I said, what if that's a null said? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and then someone said, why are you so unreasonable? But uh, the, uh, uh, that is the question. I think that when we think about all of these kind of institutions, we should be thinking about building the robust set of institutions. I, we have to remember that part of what Hayek and what Friedman also were arguing was an old Adam Smith line, which is that, what liberalism or whatever we want to call it, tried to find a set of rules where bad men, if they were given power, could do least harm, rather than finding a system where the best and the brightest could be in control and unshackled. That's the whole point about the limited government idea is that you want to make sure that even if 
someone gets in for reasons that we don't like, that they're constrained so much in their exercising a power that they can't do as much harm as they otherwise would have done. The rule of law versus the rule of man. Yeah. Yeah, Keynes uh, wrote to Hayek saying, you know, don't worry, we just have good people in charge. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Friedman wrote about that letter that Keynes wrote to Hayek. So it's, that was, that's a long debate, still going on. Just, yeah. just to point to good people, we all said, rather than thinking about the, the, the constraints that are so important. And that, Someday we'll law. find that guy that we can trust <laughs> with all that power, just yeah. maybe. But, that, that's, but that's a, it's an interesting conversation to have. And I, I was thinking about this in the context, uh, I, I just reread Hayek's uh, essay, The Intellectuals and Socialism. And I was thinking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as I'm reading that, and I think, I think critics of socialism um, should reread that because one of the things he says that is so profoundly important, and this may not be true for, for Joseph Stalin, but it, it is certainly true for an 18-year-old um, uh, young woman who thinks that Bernie Sanders is cool. Right. And he says, we need to take the advocates of socialism both seriously and, and we need to assume that their intentions are good, that they, that they care about people, that they're trying to solve problems, and that, that the, 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 the error that they're making is, is one of economics and, he doesn't say it this way, but economics and facts. Yeah. And, and we don't do that now. Like socialism, you, you know, on, on our side, you know, we use it as a pejorative, like that's socialism. And, and we talk about Venezuela. And every time I do a video on Venezuela and I, I try to explain to people, the response on social media is that's not socialism, that's oligarchy. That's not socialism, that's state capitalism. There's all these categories about why it went wrong. A lot of people blame, you know, US foreign policy for this. They have all sorts of excuses for that. But the, the one thing we need to do is, is to, to take um, someone like uh, AOC seriously. And think about, think about the, the values he's trying to pursue. Um, do you guys agree with that? Or like so, thinking about where we are today, how do we, what do we do about this trend in democratic well, socialism? I would say first, um, seems that the goal is to bring people out of poverty, right? Yeah. To make, uh, in terms of economics at least, to, to uh, that's really help people improve their lives. And that's the goal. And I think what, I've observed, we've observed, is the way to do that is to is economic freedom, and uh, that makes all the difference. And that's why China is so much different after Deng Xiaoping than before with mm -hmm. Mao. And you can go one, you know, country after country. That's why the U.S. has been successful in certain periods, and less than others, but successful all around. And and uh, and now I think this maybe be stressed more because there is a question of income distribution. There is a question. So I, I live in California, rich state, highest poverty rate in the country, highest poverty. We should care about that. We should do That's something. A shocking Don't let point. that alone. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get at that. And I think, I think I can, economic freedom will all, for all, economic freedom for all yeah. will help that greatly and has to do with education and things. So I agree completely with that. Yeah, I, I just, uh, to you know, follow along on that, I think it's really important to understand Hayek wrote The Road to Serfdom his dedication is to socialists of all parties. Yeah. And that was not meant as a snarky comment. That wasn't like, oh, ha, ha, like that. It he was, was seeing the future, by the way. And, but he was being yeah. very sincere because his colleagues at London 
um, all believed that they had to be socialists in their economics because they were liberals in their politics and that the issues of the Great Depression and the rise of monopoly power had so threatened the ability to have a working democracy that they had to fix the one to get the other. And what Hayek is trying to show them is that this is a tragic loss because you will end up by advocating policies which will end up by being your own worst nightmare. That's why it's called the road to serfdom. Um, it, it's a tragedy. It's a tragic story rather than a, um, uh, you know, a kind of a, a snarky, you know, criticism. I think it became a character because, you know, there was a cartoon book and things like that. But the reality is, is that the book is a, a very sincere effort to talk to people that are opposite of him to share their goals, but to show that the means that they're pursuing to achieve those goals are not going to actually realize those, those outcomes. And so that leads to the road to serfdom. And then that leads to what you were talking about before in the, in the follow-up uh, uh, to that. So, yeah. Let's, let's, let's remind people of a data point that you mentioned. Like, uh, and I, and I, correct me, you guys will know this better than me, but let's say in the last 20, 30 years, 70% um, of the world population has been lifted out of poverty. Is that, did I butcher that? This is according to the World Bank, not... Yeah. Not According to the World Bank figures, yeah, the, the globalization has been extremely good for the poor uh, in the world. It's also the case that uh, while rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten richer faster than the rich have gotten richer in yeah. that. Um, there is in-country, obviously, discrepancies. And as John said, these are things that we really have to care about and pay attention to. There's a uh, kind of a what, what has been tracked by some of the best work by like Raj Chetty and others is that there's a slowing of the mobility between the income quintiles in the United States. And so what's going on with that and yeah. exploring that there's tremendous questions to ask, but it's not the case that globalization has rendered the least advantaged among us worse off. It actually has been the vehicle by which the least advantaged have been lifted out of poverty. Which kind of gets to the second point that stuck with me in, in Hayek's essay, because he, he, he worries, and, and I think we should all worry about this, he worries that uh, those of us that, that believe in markets sound like we're defenders of the status quo, that yeah. we're defenders of the established order, and, and the socialists always sound like um, we can do better. They have a very, and I think he uses the word utopian, um, they have this utopian vision about doing better than we are today. And it's important to put where we are today in the context of, of some, some of the really bad mistakes that have been made in the past. But I suspect young people, particularly in the United States, have no conception of what it means to stand in line for gasoline <laughs> in the 1970s, let alone stand in line at a grocery store hoping that you can feed your children like mothers in Venezuela do today. That's not their historical context. They're they, they're dealing with a different set of problems. So I, I think, um, you know, I, I walked away from reading that essay thinking of AOC's recent quote where she says it's more important to be morally correct than factually right. Or I, I screwed that up. It's more important to be morally right than factually correct. And, and she, basically what she's saying is I'm leading with a moral vision of this, this utopian idea that we can do better. Um, we should do that because we have both, right? We have this vision of how to lift people out of poverty. We have this vision of, of a, a very small d democratic world where, where power is dispersed. 
and and where where people can pursue their own dreams. Um, but we always sound like we're you know we're arguing about marginal tax rates or yeah. or free trade agreements and stuff like that. And and how how do we make our idea? So I, I think your your views have to be grounded in facts. Otherwise, it's just philosophy and. You say anything. Right. You could say completely wrong things, historically inaccurate. And that's a danger, by the way. So I agree with you, but I think the facts have to be there. Um, one, of the, one of the essays that I like to remind people of Hayek is this notion that prices aren't set by some external. They come out of the system. Yeah. You know, use of knowledge in society. It's just, and to convey that to students. Yeah. It's really important. We do experiments and people buy and sell and they can see the prices being formed. And it's, you know, you can't decide on a price. It's going to be the wrong price for sure. And, and a lot of times government does get involved in price setting. It usually doesn't work very well. Yeah. So I think the more that you have simple stories, because in a way the socialism story is simple. We'll just do the right thing. It'll be better for you. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. And the, the decentralization automatically it's how is decentralization going to work you know you have to explain that to people it works better and and, and not only in theory but in practice the, yeah. the, the setting of prices and and is a, a radically democratic process in that yes. sense everybody's yeah. voting all the time yes and yeah. so I, I hate the fact that we're abandoning the word democracy so i'm trying to rehabilitate this word to to mean what i think it means which is is power in the hands of individuals making choices yeah i mean we're I mean, that, that's, I also, this is one of the reasons why I resist giving up on the word liberal as well is because those things are tied together. Yeah. The idea that we're one another's equals when it comes to the polity and the way that we interact with one another, democracy is a way of relating to one another um, in society. And so that is very much a part of this project. You know, Adam Smith has a wonderful line, which is that the only difference between the street porter and the philosopher is in the mind of the philosopher. And Smith spends a tremendous amount of time in going through in that book and also in the theory of moral sentiments, basically pulling on the nostril hairs of anyone who's arrogant enough to think that they can rule over others. And so what the Smith vision is, is a one in which we govern with each other rather than that we govern over somebody. And part of the problem with other things is when we have the idea that we can govern over rather than govern with. And I think that's really what we need to be communicating in a political theory sense with the young people and that the role that economics plays in that because economics, free economy is a very vital part of enabling the ability to govern with. And a controlled economy is the method for governing over. And so there's gonna be this clash between those. That sounds like both a research paradigm and a communication strategy for, for getting people to, to, to understand how this thing we call markets actually function. Yeah, I, I think, well, I mean, we're all trying our, our best. I mean, John, you know, talking about teaching principles of economics, you know, we're, we're both economists um, and we care about economics and we wanna teach sound economics and that's what we care about, good economics. But our Mont Pelerin society, we're very much interested in expanding and communicating that conversation with historians, with political theorists, uh, you know, with political scientists, with, uh, you know, all across all the disciplines, as well as people that are, as John put it, uh, dedicated to bringing ideas into action in various different ways, including maybe not so much ideas into action 
exclusively in politics, but maybe ideas into action in community-based ideas, right? Which is matters in the way that you develop civil society and you work with communities and rebuild that. And I think this is, you know, where a lot of the action is going to have to be at intellectually and in, uh, in thinking and in doing is in reinvigorating communities. Yeah. Yeah. It's real, real social change comes upstream of politics um, uh, from the bottom up. Yeah. With, with based on the, you know, the ideas that people have and the way that they process the world around them based on that framework. Yeah, I mean, that might explain the Friedman point about the winning the battle of ideas but not winning the battle of implementation. Yeah. Is that, you know, you have to have a variety of pillars in place, right? You have to have the social and cultural attitudes sort of, you know, reinforcing the political and legal environment and the unleashing of the economic environment. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's I agree you know, you wrote a book once where you said, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. And I think that that is fundamental. I saw uh, Bob Higgs, who's a hero of mine, uh, recently sum up his position in, re in response to people agitating against him. And he said, how about it? Have you ever thought of the idea if we just get out of people's ways and off of their backs that they might be able to do wonderful and miraculous things? And I agree with that. But I, I think that we have to actually study that and communicate that even more to empower that. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that we'll, I wish we'd talk more about is federalism. Yeah. And the decisions made at, at local levels. It's actually part of freedom. Yeah. That's, a, that's an important aspect. The United States has emphasized that from its start. And it does provide more freedom. Also, people at the ground level, they know much more than the people at the top somewhere, it was little, you know, local school districts, anyone who's been involved yeah. in local politics really recognizes that there's so much information that comes at these, at these lower, so-called lower levels where it's really affecting people's lives. So we probably should be working more on that. I think the technology could help quite a bit. I, I really like the podcasts and the things you're referring to again, but I think uh, there's much more that could happen. I mean, just think about it, the ability of a of a poor farmer in Africa to learn how to rotate crops through the internet, yeah, and it, it, to, to do communications of of, of simple fin financial transactions, it's huge. And yeah. we, you know, I don't. I hope that the concerns about privacy, which are very real, they don't get in the way of this incredible yeah. ability to spread the word, and and partly is spread the word of what really works. I, I read a really cool book not that long ago. It's um. Uh, 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 called uh, Big City No Lights. And it's about, uh, in Africa, um, they didn't have the electric grid um, at all, so these cell phones gave so much freedom to people, yeah. but how do you have them? If you don't have electricity, you end up by, they become a paperweight, right? And so what use are they? So what happened, this guy, Whit Alexander, started a, a, a mobile recharging center and then rechargeable batteries for the cell phones. It, and it's called Burrow. It's a non a nonprofit, I think, uh, that, you know, we could donate money to or whatever. And they yeah. set up these like and and then the, the little uh, kiosks with the rechargeable batteries are set up as a market around um, in Africa and you're able to recharge your cell phone. But then once just having a cell phone gives so much power to being able <laughs> to do things like set up a business and do all kinds of other areas, which in Enable, you know, uh, sort of all these wealth creating opportunities. And so I think just little things like that and studying and understanding where that comes from, because that doesn't come from some government dictate. It comes from right. empowering the creativity of individuals. Yeah.
Okay, let's let's wrap this up because you have to get back and gavel in the yeah. uh, Mont, Mont <laughs> Society. What, what are some of the hot topics that that, that we're going to deal with this week? Actually, the theme is debates about classical liberalism. Yeah. And so all the things that we seem like we agree on, we're going to be debating the fundamentals. I think it's, in a way, that's, that's the nature of this society in the beginning. You can usually improve things by debating them. Yeah. And there's different views that got to get sorted out. So I think that's it's a good theme. That's what we're going to be focusing on and hopefully come out of that with a, a better ability to affect the world and people that we talked about. Conversations, uh, arguments, and, and a little bit of open-mindedness. I, right. That's, that's the ethos at Mont Pelerin. Right. Yeah. Love it. Thank you, guys. This has been awesome. Thank you. Very cool. Okay, great. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.